Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Taking you back to the golden era of Formula One. Mavericks. Free spirits. Drivers dicing with danger and even death. Welcome to Formula Once Upon a Time. The biggest events and incidents from the history of Formula One. The behind the scenes stories that could not be told until now. Here's Norman Howell and Roberto Bocafogli. In this edition, we're talking money. Whatever it takes, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million. One million dollars for one race. He paid us another two million to go. So all in all, we did pretty well out of it. That's Ian Phillips, and we'll hear from him later. Formula One is all about money. Who gets what and where does it come from? Do drivers have to pay to get into Formula One or is it talent? Well, it's changed over the years, and Roberta and I started by thinking how some of the great drivers have made it into the sport. One of the greatest drivers ever, Fanjo. Yeah. He was, he was already driving, uh, driving everything, you know, these amazing thousand-kilometer drives and terrible roads, uh, you know, in, in Latin America. But he was so good that the Peronista government, the Juan Peron, who were very good at their own... Uh, brand i would say you know you know the, they 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 sent him to europe and they bought him a, a racing maserati didn't they yeah it's totally correct and um, peron bought him and froilan gonzalez some special cars maserati and even one ferrari which was still alfa romeo at those times <clears throat> they started like that but uh, when everybody saw how brilliant it was so let's say in uh, 1950, when the proper championship started, he and Gonzalez were paid until nine, until the 56 season, with a proper wage as Argentinian ambassadors. They were called uh, uh, Delgado Delgados uh, um, Delgados Obreras, something like that. Delegates, delegates for the, for the government. Yeah, delegates like the from the government. And they were exactly paid by Peron, very big amount of money. And then they started to win and so on, you know, because the big fight was who will win the first race between you, you two. And Fangio started being very competitive in 1950, but the first important race was won by Gonzalez, and it was the first Ferrari won race in Silverstone the following season. So it was also an incredible fight between them. 
Anyway, the story is very, very big, very, very big. After these state-sponsored drivers, the, the, the scene changed a little bit, didn't it? Other drivers came through, well, you know, differently. Nelson Piquet, he came with some money from his father, who was quite rich. Nelson and the Senna had very similar stories. But Sten, Senna was a little bit richer, and he started as a driver. Piquet started as a mechanic. Yeah, that's right. The idea that Nelson Piquet's cleaned the garage while Carlos Reutemann is getting his car ready to go out. Exactly. exactly. I love that. At Brabham. I mean, you know, and with, with, with a, a certain Mr. Eccleston overseeing everything, you can just imagine the atmosphere in the garage. But yeah. that is so incredibly different from how drivers now are. I mean, I want to talk to some of the older drivers, but I just want to touch on the fact that they, they start at four, five, six years old. Mm-hmm with a lot of money needed. So they, they go into these academies so quickly. But, but they have to pay to get in there, don't they, Roberto? It's not just, you know, if you join the Ferrari Academy, it's not, it's not a free ride, is it? It's not totally a free ride. I mean, for sure, family, families pay for this. And as soon as the driver gets interesting, of course, the manufacturer supports them very much. But yes, when you want to start, you start because, uh, for sure, somebody gives some money to the manufacturer. But it reminds me, and this makes it even more remarkable, when you, when you think of, of Nicky Lauda or Nigel Mansell. Yeah. You know, they, they managed to finance themselves into mm. Formula One, and they were clever. I mean, Nicky, if I remember correctly, Nicky took out two, pers- two, two life insurances, <laughs> and, he, and he used these... To, to, to get bank loans, to push himself into the sport. I mean, that's a, an incredible self-belief. And I think Mansell too, Mansell, if I remember correctly, mortgaged his house, if not once, cert- not twice, certainly once. And I know that he gave up his job. You know, he was, a, he was an engineer. And just, you know, he'd had a massive accident when he was in Formula Ford. And, you know, a few months later, he managed to win that title. The incredible focus and concentration and self-belief these guys had because if it went wrong that was it they, they were bankrupt no money mm-hmm. yeah and correct and guys won world championships yeah 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 so I, I just i just i find it extraordinary to to think that and then and then of course you know they do end up earning a lot of money of course they do and and deservedly um i also think of some of the drivers like um like alonso who Again, great talent, but he also had a fantastic manager behind him. Yeah. Who was that? <laughs> so, the, Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were two managers, actually, because uh, one, of course, is Flavio. When Flavio got him and he was still at Minardi, Flavio immediately noticed who he was. And then from then, since then, he was fantastically supported. But uh, the very first manager he got, it was Garcia. You remember the yes. Spanish yeah, Garcia, yes. friend of his father, and so on. So there also, Garcia helped him very much to get in touch with the right people. Yes, because Alonso's father, again, it's interesting, quite a few of these guys, some had rich parents, some mm. didn't. Mm. You know, Michael, we'll talk about Michael in a minute, but, you know, his dad ran a carton truck and his mum made the sandwiches, you know. Yeah. Alonso's father, if I remember correctly, drove, um, worked in a quarry and, yeah. and drove, drove around the bulldozers. And, you know, and, and it's not to belittle, you know, and, and Hakkinen's parents too were 
totally normal people. So it's not to belittle. Uh, and of course, Hamilton's dad and family, you know, these were not wealthy people. They all worked incredibly hard, believed in their children, and made enormous sacrifices for them, which again, you, you, have, to, you have to admire. I remember when Kimi started being winning in Formula One, he said the fantastic story that uh, he used to live in a house that was more like a country house than a townhouse in Finland. And that house had uh, no bathroom inside. They had a bathroom in the garden. So his first point when he was starting getting some money by racing, that was Formula One, of course, because uh, he came without Formula Three, without Formula Two. He just came from the smaller formulas. And he started to being approached by Peter Zauber. He made a test at Mugello and was that quick. And he was in the team very, very quickly. The first mm. thing he did, he bought a house to his family, to his mother and father, with a bathroom inside. It was absolutely his uh, number one point. And that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful story, especially in Finland, where it's dark a lot of the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and cold. And quite chilly, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in, an, an indoor bathroom is, um, is a must, definitely. I want to talk about Michael, actually. Um, there's this, this fantastic story that, we, that we'd like to tell, that, that Michael... Of course, was was picked up. He had a great manager too, Willy Weber, and, and he was picked up at Mercedes in the early days. But Mercedes were trying to position him in Formula One, and they went to one of the great maverick characters in the sport, Eddie Jordan, mm. and asked him to test him. Yeah. And uh, and I remember that uh, I was I was a journalist at the time, and I remember that somebody from Jordan called me up and said, listen, we've just tested this guy. He's just off the scale. Amazing. We tested him and at the Silverstone North Circuit, and we were blown away. But you know what? We can't get him in the team. We've got two drivers already. Yeah. There he is, amazing young German driver. Mercedes are willing to pay and are paying, will pay, Eddie Jordan, quite a lot of money. One million for one yeah. race. One million yeah. dollars for one race. It's that amazing, isn't it? And then they also... And they also guaranteed, I think, payment for four or five years after that, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. because they I, asked to give uh, the to allow Schumacher to race at least ten races the following year. That's right. And yeah. so he, he, they wanted him, but of course there was no space in the team. Exactly. They had two drivers, yeah. and then lo and behold, just before the Spa Grand Prix, their Belgian driver Bernard Gachot gets into an altercation with a London taxi driver. <laughs> Pepper sprays him, which is illegal in England, ends up in prison. Yeah. Suddenly, Jordan has a spare seat. Exactly. And comes Michael Schumacher and debuts a spa. And what did he qualify really well, didn't he? Where, where did he qualify? I can't remember. Six, seven? Uh, I, think, I think seventh. Yeah, yeah which is was extraordinary. Unbelievable. Spa is a, such a tough circuit. I remember his teammate, Andrea de Cesaris, who was not absolutely, he wasn't following, he wasn't believing the telemetry data. Yes. Yeah, and he was discussing them. I mean, he was really <laughs> arguing with the team, saying, you are, you are kidding me, you are trying to, to fuck me up because it's not possible. It's really not possible. Who is this guy? He was Schumacher. He was Schumacher. He then raced. I think the car, he had to retire the next day on, on race day. Yeah. That was the beginning of his extraordinary career. But, but it's still the story gets weirder still, or it doesn't, or doesn't stop getting weird. Because, of course, what happened was that 
a Mr. Briatore again thought this was a, a good driver. And if I remember correctly, a, a Mr. Eccleston was also keen to, to move him about. Mm-hmm. And so, so Schumacher ends up at Benetton. Yeah, the story is quite long because, uh, yes, uh, Flavio saw him in Belgium and uh, like everybody of us, was uh, nearly not believing that because Schumacher was really, really, really out of the basket, totally out of the basket. In fact, it really opened a new era and uh, everybody who was in the paddock, understanding what we were talking of, understood that, that Schumacher was absolutely, absolutely outstanding. Flavio also, because if if Eddie Jordan had two drivers and he had to wait for Bertrand Gachot to go in prison in London to have a free seat, Flavio Bertori was exactly in the same point, because he had already Nelson Piquet and Roberto Moreno. Yes, And he immediately started going to Monza. He spent one night or two nights trying to solve the situation. And they decided to declare that Moreno was not totally owner of his brain. So they (laughs) destroyed him as a driver. They destroyed him as a sportman, saying that uh, it was uh, too dangerous for the team to drive the Benetton car. So Moreno was suddenly out and Schumacher was suddenly in. And uh, when we went to Monza interviewing Schumacher for the first time, because nearly nobody interviewed him in Belgium, it was too much of a surprise. But in Monza we did, and I remember uh, Briatore at one centimeter from myself saying, okay, he is very fast, but if we get Schumacher, it is because we must show the top drivers that teams now must start to, to save money. And Nelson Piquet, Nelson Piquet wage is far too high. And now we spend for Schumacher for next year nearly one-tenth of what we spent for Nelson Piquet. And this also destroyed Piquet because in the comparison between them two, Piquet mm-hmm. was immediately, immediately overtaken by Schumacher. That, yes. that makes the story absolutely unbelievable because I think that Briatore had some of a light. He understood immediately what people normally understood a little bit later. He destroyed yes, yes. the team, he destroyed the situation, he changed everything in a night, he convinced the, the sponsors to support him, because Bertore got, uh, in a second, he got uh, Schumacher in the team, so the money coming from Mercedes, because Mercedes went on paying one million per race until yeah. the end of the season, which was big money, of course, for Benetton. But uh, also, Briatore said to all his top teams, that with that driver, the team was capable to point to the championship from the next season. And so he has more money to everybody, and he got it. It was an incredible financial thing from Flavio. Incredible. Well, someone who can give us the inside track on the Schumacher story is Ian Phillips. He was at Jordan at the time, and I asked him if he remembered any of the details. Oh, yeah, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> the first time Michael was connected with the seat was when Eddie phoned me six o'clock on Sunday night and said, Michael Schumacher is going to be driving for us. He's paying £150,000 a race. Can you meet him at the factory tomorrow? Get everything sorted and give him a test at Silverstone on Tuesday. Willie Weber, his manager, and Michael arrived at Silverstone at our little lock-up uh, factory. Um, 
mid-afternoon on on Monday. Michael, I have to say, was uh, absolutely charming, as as to be honest, he was throughout his career. Yeah, we we got everything done, and the deal basically was that he would do the rest of the season for us, and IMG on behalf of Mercedes, IMG Switzerland with the agents for Mercedes, uh, yeah. would, pay us, would pay us 150,000 pounds, that's pounds sterling, per race till the end of the season, and three million pounds for the following season. You know, it was all, all money to us. So, uh, yes, thank you very much. We'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, remember, we were at this stage on the verge of bankruptcy. You know, Eddie had put in uh, cash and houses to the value of about two and a half million dollars to get the team up and running. And essentially, we, uh, we'd run out. Gasho, who was on his way to jail, of course, had paid very, very little. I don't think it was much more than 100,000. Andrea de Cesaris, God bless him, Marlborough paid close on $4 million for him for a badge on the overalls, which yep. was a very good deal. <laughs> very good deal. But Ian, just to take a step back, why did they approach you and Eddie? Somehow or another, and to be honest, I'm not quite sure to this day, and for sure EJ won't remember, uh, I think he probably phoned Willie and said, listen, there's an opportunity for you, because things weren't looking good. This was the Sunday before the race meeting, and we hadn't got anything done at all. And I think he phoned Willie on the off chance uh, that they might be interested. And Jochen Nierpash was the man from IMG. Uh, Jochen was in charge of the money. He had the budget to spend. And, you know, it was, a, I think, a five-minute conversation. Really amazing. Yeah. Five minute conversation to get Michael in your car. And then, well, and then, of course, then, you know, for years, he was the, he was the man. Extraordinary. Yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, you know, as most people know, uh, we didn't get beyond the first race meeting. But to be fair to Michael, he, at almost every opportunity he took away to say thank you to uh, EJ, there was a, a gold Omega watch signed, thank you from Michael. He then suggested that his brother, uh, Ralph, should drive with us, and he told Willie to pay us the £2 million that we wanted for him to drive. And then when Ralph wanted to leave at the end of '98, he paid us another £2 million to go. Uh, so all in all, we did pretty well out of it. <laughs> <laughs> You certainly did. You certainly did. And and tell us what. Obviously, we know that Michael then went to to Benetton. What what happened there? Well, to be honest, it took me a few years to work this out, but it won't come as any surprise to anybody that one Bernard Charles Eccleston was behind uh, the whole uh, thing. RTL, who was the German broadcaster, wanted a German on the grid and when michael did qualified seventh in the jordan on the saturday there was a bit of excitement going on and to be fair uh i think both willie and michael were very happy with jordan but 
yeah. one person, and there was only, other than Eddie and myself, there was only one person in the world who knew that we were going to switch to Yamaha engines in 19... Of course. In of course. And that was Bernie, who had done a deal with us in Hungary two weeks before to make sure that we got that deal. And actually, on the Monday after Spa, Eddie was flying off to Tokyo to sign the deal. Now, sometime on the Sunday morning, Willie Weber and Neopash came to have a chat with me and said, listen, everything's okay. We'll do the contract uh, next week. Can you guarantee that you will be running Ford engines next year? Yeah. To which I said, yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Of course, by then, I think they already knew that we weren't because Flavio Briatore was the new guy in charge of uh, Benetton that year. And God bless him, Flavio hadn't got a freaking clue what was going on. Um, And he relied on Bernie. I was about to say, Bernie had a clue. (laughs) Yes, to steer him in the right direction. Now, Flavio was running Nelson Piquet, managed by Bernard Charles Eccleston, and Roberto Moreno, uh, Piquet's best mate, but really nice guy, but not up to the job. And I think Flavio was getting a bit frustrated. So RTL go to see Bernie and said, oh, listen, yeah, you know, we've got to have Michael in Formula One. And, you know, we really like Jordan. Yeah, well, of course, they're going to have Yamaha Power next year. Oh, God. But I'll tell you what, I could get you into Benetton. Listen, I have chatted with Bernie about it. He's never been totally specific. But fast forward to the Thursday of Monza when it's all kicked off. And, well, first of all, I got, let's, let's take it chronologically. On We all said goodbye after Spa. Yeah, fine. Didn't hear much during the week. EJ was in Japan anyway. Friday, I get a call from Willie saying, yeah, everything's very good, but be very careful of near passion. He could be tricky. But don't worry, it's all going to be okay. Uh, right? Thanks, Willie. See you Monday. So Neopash, Willie, and somebody, a lawyer from IMG turned up. Well, I didn't allow him in because I didn't trust him. Uh, <clears throat> and we sat down. I said, ah, well, uh, we don't like the original contract. This is the contract you want. And they wanted all the signage on the car. Quite different from what we'd previously agreed. However, we talked about it. We said, yeah, okay, fine. Give us tonight and we'll make that work. So we all left. As they left, one of our team got a call from one of his old colleagues uh, at Benetton to say Michael was there having a seat fitting. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, What is going on here? Anyway, uh, our lawyer and I worked through the night to come up with a revised contract meeting what they wanted. And Willie and Michael were due to turn up at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning to sign. At about one minute past 10, a fax came through for EJ. Uh, Dear Eddie, I'm very sorry, but I'm not going to be able to sign the contract and raise for you. Many thanks for everything. Best regards, Michael. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Um, So... uh, Kind of panic setting, I suppose this was 
the Tuesday before Monza. Um, so not a lot to do. Uh, we applied for an injunction in London, which I think was to be heard on the Thursday morning. I got to Monza very early Thursday morning, going to our motorhome, and I find one Roberto Moreno tucked away behind a curtain. <laughs> Roberto's best mate was our chief designer, Gary Anderson. They, Gary had engineered him for the Formula 3000 Championship a couple of years before. And so we were looking after Roberto, who his legal team were taking out an injunction in Monza to prevent Benetton from running anybody else but Roberto in the car. I have no idea where EJ was, but he wasn't around. Uh, I went to see Bernie, knocked on the door, went into the motor home, and there he is. He's sitting there, and he's got a map of Sardinia. God, I've just bought a bit of land here, and I'm talking, oh, tell <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? <laughs> Bernie, while you were away, oh, all sorts of shenanigans going on, and you know, Flavio's trying to nick Michael. Is he? Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said we should have some sort of protection mechanism again over contracts. <laughs> anyway, of course, a brilliant job of uh, pretending he knew absolutely nothing about it, but it was, leave with me, I'll come back to you. <laughs> um, we lost our injunction in London, but Roberto's lawyers in Monza were successful. About 3.30 we got the news. Benetton cannot put anybody else in the car. I was for phone rings, Bernie. You and EJ get up to the Villa Deste as soon as you can. Villa Deste? Villa Fat Fat. And, of course, the finest hotel on the side of Lake Como. It, it would be, wouldn't it? Yes, of course. <laughs> and EJ had arrived by this stage. We get into our uh, Fiat 500 and find our way to the glorious for the best day. We get there, and there's Bernie, Flavio, Tom Walkinshaw, who was effectively running uh, Benetton at the time. And of course, he was also running the Jaguar sports car team that Michael was managing to beat in the Mercedes. So he knew how bloody good Michael was. Yes. So anyway, we arrive, Roberto and his lawyer turn up, and Bernie comes out and says, listen, guys, there's no money. So just decide what you're going to do. And off they went to one of the world's great dining rooms. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. To, to have dinner. <laughs> um, and Michael and William were already in there, so we hadn't got any sign of them. And we sat there. What were we going to do? Absolutely. No way, Roberto. You know, you have won. They have to put you in the car or they have to make an offer. After a bit, Bernie comes out. Well, what's happening? I said, well, Bernie, nothing. We don't have to do anything. Then I went and stood and I know just underneath the staircase there was a lovely wooden cabinet with some beautiful bells in it. I said, come here. And Bernie and I went and stood by this cabinet. Well, 10 metres away from everybody else. And I said, listen, you know the rules as well as I do. If Benetton don't run 
two cars, which at the moment is going to be the case, they will be thrown out of the championship because there's no way they can claim force majeure and they can't put anybody else in the car. He looks at me and the old finger jabs. You're right, you're right, leave with me. <laughs> Off he disappears into the dining room. A bit later on, Walkinshaw comes out to offer us a drink. Well, he's obviously had a glass or two of some very, very fine uh, Italian wine because he's carrying it and spilling it over the carpet. Oh, had your drink. Well, there's nothing left in the bottle by the time he actually sat down. <laughs> and then we wait a bit longer. Uh, Michael comes out because he's on his way to bed. So it must be about nine o'clock right now, nine thirty. And we shake hands and he just says, listen, I'm really, really sorry about this. I didn't want any of this to happen. Okay. And then Willie came out for a bit of a chat. And we, I mean, we could only joke. Oh, he just said, no, listen, I'm not sure Michael's going to be sitting in that car because, you know, Roberto's not going anywhere. So come about 11 o'clock, I think Bernie did flag, maybe flag put in an appearance with Bernie, but it was all Bernie. Right, okay. Half a million dollars, Roberto, to go away. Uh, and you will not drive the car, you'll drop the injunction will be waived and Michael will drive the car. Mm, yeah. All right, thank you, Bernie. We'll think about it. And I uh, said, right, Roberto, the one thing you don't do, you don't accept that offer. You've got until, or they've got until, it's effectively one o'clock on Saturday to come up with a better offer because if they don't run, the car in qualifying means they can't run two cars at the race and they are thrown out of the championship. Well, dear old Roberto had never dreamed of half a million dollars in his life. Of it course. Was, it was all Christmases come at once. And eventually, against all of us, because we could have gone at least another day and doubled it, but I don't know, about half past midnight, he said, tell you what, I'm going to take it. But on the understanding that I can drive for Jordan. And so we said, well, if you're taking half a million off Flavio, we're going to take half of that, 250000 <laughs> and we'll do you a two-race deal. <laughs> Uh, and then we'll see what happens after, after that. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant. Yes, yes, yes. And so that's how uh, we communicated it back. So, right, okay. And then, I mean, we, it was, I don't know, half one, two o'clock in the morning. Eddie and I had no idea what hotel we were staying at. So <laughs> we, we said to Flav, oh, one final condition. Eddie and I are staying here tonight. Thanks. <laughs> well... For the first, and I'm pleased to say only time, I had to share a bed with Eddie Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a grand bed, Ian. It, it, it wasn't actually that big, no. <laughs> uh, the good thing was it, it cost Flavio 600 euros, and he vowed he would never stay in such an expensive hotel ever again. Formula Once Upon a Time.
Well, we'll 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 talk more about Flavio in another podcast. Uh, we're 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 already calling it the Sorcerer's Apprentice because yeah. I think he. You, you mentioned about revolutionising the sport. I think he did. You know, I think I think Bernie clearly started the sport really as a modern broadcast TV ready sport, uh, and and Flavio then took it to the next the next stage of revolution. So we'll talk about that a bit later. But uh, and if I can say, Norman, Bernie Eccleston was is Bernie Eccleston. He was coming from motorsport. He was coming from Formula One. That's right. He was nearly touching Formula One even as a driver because yeah, he yeah, used to be a driver. Yeah, Flavio came from somewhere totally else, totally far away. He didn't care at all of motorsport. When no. he came here, he said, what is this? I mean, I remember that he said that he was with uh, Benetton, uh, the father of Alessandro. Um, Luciano. Exactly. And yeah, they went Luciano. together to Australia that year. And Benetton was paying, but the team was run by somebody else. You remember Peter Collins. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And Flavio was there and he asked Luciano, sorry, but how much you spent for this? And Luciano said, we spent this and that. And Flavio said, okay, and you allow these people to be the people who represent the team telling you what to do when you are paying the money. I mean, with that money, I'm sure we could do something else. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's much better. So this opened the way to fly in the team because it, I mean, I remember that it, it was few days and Peter Connors was out of everything and he was yeah, yeah. the boss. I mean, he had such a life. I just remember it. He, he was once telling me that you know what? These people in Formula One. You know what? What do they? Who do they think they are? They think they're so special. And he used the word Italian. The Italian word. He said, um, "Phenomeni." Yeah, they think phenomena. they're all phenomena. They think they're all amazing phenomenons. Yeah. You know, I opened up. I can't remember how many. He said uh, 20, 30 Benetton shops in in New York and New Jersey. I tell you what. 
that was interesting. I had to deal with some other Italians in that part of the world. <laughs> they were a little bit more difficult to deal with than these phenomenons in Formula One. Love that. <laughs> Flavio and, uh, and, and uh, the Sopranos. Um, uh, you know, a very funny image. You know, this business of showing the money, I, I like the fact I was looking into this a little bit, and I remember when, when Senna started, he, he had slight difficulty in getting to, into a couple of teams because the main sponsors, and this is where the importance of the sponsors are, and it still is now, really. Sponsors often want someone from their country. Although, you know, we're in a global world, sponsors are still quite linked to their nationalities. And the reason he didn't get into Brabham, for example, which was run by Eccleston at the time, was because Paramalat, which is an Italian huge dairy conglomerate, which then went into Brazil and then had an enormous bankruptcy which of, of, of gazillions of millions. But anyway, at the time, they were obviously fairly straightforward. But they didn't want a Brazilian driver. They had the two Fabi brothers, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Correct. And then also, I think it, Lotus was the same, wasn't it? John Player Special, which was Imperial Tobacco. They wanted a British driver. Uh, I think it was Mansell, in fact. And they didn't want yes. a Brazilian driver. Yeah. So, you know, the, the path into Formula One, and you know, we spoke about how, you know, Lauda and Mansell and others were so determined to get in. But, you know, talent can only get you so far. If you didn't get the right sponsor or the right sponsor wanted you or didn't want you, it was very thin margins. I mean, can you imagine Senna didn't get, a, didn't get drives and two pretty good teams ended up at Tolman. Well, you know, he ended up doing very well and, and we know what happened to Ayrton. He did a fantastic job, but he nearly didn't make it. With Senna, the story is even stranger from my point of view because even Senna came to Europe thanks to some money. The oh, money yes, of course. Given, his father was a wealthy man, wasn't he? The first money came from his father and the, his father assured him to race in carts in karting, and then to upgrade to the European karting. Yes. So he came down here. He was going very well. I mean, he was fighting with the incredibly iconic names like Peter de Bruyne, who was the winner at those times, and he defeated him. But he was unable to win the World Championship because he was uh, technically very, very unfortunate a couple of times because he was able to win the championship, the World Championship at least twice. But at that time, it was already supported by Brazilian sponsors. I remember yes. he had Baneri. You remember Baneri, the yes. yellow one on his cup. And uh, it was quite good, but it was not big amount of money. And when he tested all the teams in Formula One, he tested them because it was incredibly fast karting, Formula Ford. I mean, it was debuting Formula Ford 1600, won the championship. Formula Ford 2000, won the championship. Formula 3 in England, and you won yeah. the championship on the first season by winning the first eight races in a row. And then the team lost money, and so he was starting having kind of trouble. But he won the championship over Brundle, who was a big guy in England. And uh, he had some money, but it was not a big money. And so he was not convincing totally the teams because he tested for Brabham, for McLaren, for Williams. And in the end, he was accepted in the end, just by Toleman, because Toleman were happy with less money. It's a very incredible thing if you imagine that after four or five years, Ayrton was a guy who allowed himself to refuse 
a year contract with Ron Dennis and said, okay, yeah. I race Incredible. for you if you give me $1 million per race. Yeah, yeah. It was 92, I think. Yeah. And, and, and Ron was paying that. Yeah, I remember. I, I, was, um, I was working at McLaren at the time, actually. And uh, I remember the, the, the extraordinary sight of coming into the office in, in the morning. And the way the old McLaren factory was set up, you, you had to go past Ron's office because he'd like to see... <laughs> Who came in at what time? Um, and, uh, and so you had to go past Ron's office, and, um, or the anti-office, because he had, two, he had two secretaries in the front office and then his office at the back. But he had the doors open. So in the morning, he had the doors open so he could see how people came in. And one day I came in, and there was Ayrton. He was sitting there. He was there reading his, his Bible. I mean, in a T-shirt and jeans. And I, I said, what? Ayrton, well, you know, hi, and you know, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just waiting to see Ron. Well, what about? Well, you know, we have to negotiate, you know, every race. We have to negotiate the deal. <laughs> it's just surreal. Absolutely surreal. Unreal. And he was completely relaxed, you know, about the whole thing, you know. And, you know, and he, was, he was in a nearly meditative state. As I said, he was sitting very upright, you know. And as you know, he was always very, very, very slim and fit and good looking and there he was in a white t-shirt and jeans and trainers and in his Bible in his hand waiting to see Ron. I mean, just completely, you know, mind blowing. It's a very strange sport, this. <laughs> and, and Norman, another point, which is totally, totally ununderstandable today with all young drivers coming from academies and managers and so on. Ron and Senna were dealing without Senna having a, a personal manager. That's right. Exactly like Mansell, exactly like Gerberger, yeah. exactly like the first Alan Prost. They didn't have a manager. They weren't discussing with the owner of the team, discussing themselves and signing the, the contract on paper when both sides were happy with it. I mean, it was totally another thing compared to today. If you consider, I'm sure we, were, we will be talking about Lance Stroll, but <laughs> Lance Stroll, I'm sure that he doesn't even know what the details of his contract with his Formula One team are. I, I, I agree entirely. And it's not being disrespectful to Lance, obviously. It's just how the drivers have evolved and how they are positioned now. It's interesting you talk about Lance Troll because, of course, that's, you know, we, we, this is Formula Once Upon a Time. And, you know, we like to talk about the past because we enjoy it. And there's a few things we can say that are fun. But, you know, they're still having to show the money. Mr. Stroll Sr. is very active in Formula One, as we, all, as we know, and things are evolving all the time. And, you know, his son is, is there because his father is happy to, to invest in his talent. And, you know, there's a lot of people who feel that drivers like Lance and a number of others in the past who've come through, and Honda used to push quite a few Japanese drivers through. And, of course, we had an Indonesian driver who, who were pushed through by either the motor manufacturers or big petrol, you know, oil companies, and for, for nationalistic reasons, a bit like Fangio all those years ago. But you have to invest in talent. So it's, it's not that someone like a pay driver, some, it's not negative. You know, if they can make it, great. And so M Mr. Stroll is investing in his son and investing in teams along the way. And, and as, as we are looking at, you know, a very, very difficult time for Formula One now, the investment that very wealthy people like Mr. Stroll can put in, maybe he's going to help save some teams and give his son a Formula One career. 
But of course, sponsorship is always important as well. And Ian Phillips, who was number two to Eddie Jordan and very, very closely linked to the finances of the team, can give us an idea of how it worked. Oh, yes. I mean, the sponsorship side is not quite as it was. But, you know, you've got manufacturer-dominated major teams and they've all got alliances with, say, fuel companies and the fuel companies help them. And fuel, I don't know if it is today, but certainly through most of my time of being with the team, fuel was crucial, the type of fuel that... Uh, that you used and what you added to it and so on. And, you know, there was a lot of shenanigans going on, but it was very, very clever stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was big. It was big business for uh, fuel companies, good advertising. What, uh, and, and this is something that I regret enormously for the sake of, of Formula One, but the reason why Jordan had to sell. Uh, Burning had been so successful because he'd done these great TV deals like he did with RTL and, and so on, of, of getting viewership for Formula One around the world, uh, was that, of course, all the manufacturers came in. And I think yeah. come 2003, four, there were eight manufacturers. Well, the problem with them was they got a budget. And you get something like dear old Flavio at, uh, at Benetton, Flavio was on 25% of whatever he brought into the team anyway. But, you know, they, Renault were paying all the bills. Oh, whatever, whatever it takes, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million. But if you want to put things on the car, make it look good, fine. So where we would charge 20 million for a title sponsor, Flavio was doing it for 10. Yeah, because everything and, else was paid for. Yeah, and keeping yeah. 25%. Uh, for, for himself, you know, the, the sponsorship was just an ego trip. Look what we can look what we can do, and of course that is what ultimately crucified uh, the privateers and left us with what I think is a very sad state of affairs currently. Yeah, yeah, it killed it killed the market. Well, it killed the smaller teams. You're absolutely right. The privateers, it undercut everyone, yeah. um, and I think we're still seeing the results of it now, aren't we, Ian? Well, yes. I mean, listen, as a, a privateer wanting to come in now, I mean, you, you can't. You, the budgets are just madness. You've got to have £175 million. Pounds and, you know, minimum 600 people. But Mercedes has got 1,600 just down the road from where, I'm, where I am now. Um, you know, Red Bull have got probably 1,100, 1,200. Jordan finished third in the World Championship, and we could have won it, to be honest, in 1999, uh, with 175 people and a £75 million budget. Now, tell me, what is wrong with those figures? That's achievable. If anybody other than Liberty was running Formula One, i.e. if it was back in Bernie's hands, he'd be paying you £75 million. Yes, uh, yes you're right. You know? So it, you'd be breaking even before you started. But now it's not possible. Who are you going to find? Well, Lawrence Stroll, God bless him. You know, I, I, I'm happy with what he's doing with what was Jordan is now racing point, will be Aston Martin, whatever. But why is he doing it? For his son? I mean, that's a playing driver and a half, that is. <laughs> you know, you've got the guy at Williams, uh, Latifi, I think, 
those sort of guys, they're paying 20 million a year for their sons to go racing. I mean, do me a favour. You know, there used to be, during my days as a journalist in the 70s, early 80s, the structure behind Formula One, Formula Two, Formula Three, all the other categories, which ran independently of Formula One. But, you know, we had grids of 30, 40 cars, and everybody had something to aim at. And if you were good, yes, somebody was going to pay somewhere along the line, but it wasn't outrageous sorts of sorts of money. Um, it was achievable. Sponsorship was available, all that kind of thing. But now, where is it for anybody to go? The guys that run, you know, Eddie Jordan ran uh, championship winning Formula 3 and Formula 3000 teams. His logical step was to go to Formula 1. It isn't now. It's because it's just not possible. Um, and I think that's a terribly, terribly sad state of affairs. Because otherwise, I think that the, the challenge of, of, you know, of, of Formula E, which is, is not a challenge yet, but it's going to become a challenge, a moral challenge, and eventually a financial challenge, especially as the manufacturers are so involved in that side of things. So you're right about, you know, you know Stroll and Latifi and people like that coming in. The, the counter-argument, of course, is that, is that this brings it back to the old days, quote-unquote, where privateers were supported by, by rich individuals and, and, and connected to sponsorships, and the motor manufacturers didn't have the power which they have now. So you, you could look at it both ways, of course. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, the thing is, it's the manufacturers that have inadvertently dragged it down, if you like. But I think Mercedes actually get negative PR out of it now. They've dominated because it's what they do. Adrian Newey and I went to a meeting, a secret meeting with Mercedes in 1989 uh, with the board for two days up in a mountain chalet outside of Stuttgart and the guys from Mercedes said they have to dominate. It's but about diminish, diminishing returns for them isn't it really? It is as far as I know they've done what they set out to do which was steal the youth market in Germany from BMW. I think they've yeah. that, well they have done that. Uh, they've, they've done very well from that point of view. But but going back to um, the, the times when um, what we were talking about, were there any drivers that came through purely on talent or did they all have to one way or another somehow pay their way in? Well, yes, one way or another, I, I think they do, uh, Norman, to be honest. I mean, look, Nicky Lauda paid. Um, Ronnie Peterson had um, a, a silent back a guy called Count Googie Zanon, who, what he used to do, he used to invest in engines. And if Ronnie wanted to go to a team, he would supply three DFEs uh, to the team as sort yeah. of Ronnie, Ronnie's way in. I mean, did James Hunt pay? Physically, no, but it took Lord Hesketh to invest quite a lot of money into James to make him into a, a commodity. If, if yeah, you like. now, yeah. we, without Alexander Hesketh, James would not have got into Formula One. Would not have gone on to be a world champion. They adopted him in in Formula Three and saw something and took him took him all the way. You know, and that's Lewis Hamilton, eight years old was he or ten years old or something? And Ron Dennis saw a spark 
and invested McLaren money yep. in, yeah, into yeah. him and, and his career. Keke Rosberg, who I mentioned earlier on, you know, he <coughs> who was a man who smoked heavier than I did in, in those days, but he had backing from cigarette companies in Finland. They all had, to be fair, in those days, they had to work hard. They'd go and race in anything. Sports cars, other single-seated categories, touring cars, they would race every weekend just to make it possible for them to go Formula One. It, it was hard work. It wasn't, you know, turn up every two weeks in your private jet. I mean, these guys flogged themselves to death to get in there. And, you know, that was nice. And I was very lucky uh, growing up as a journalist in the, in the 70s with all those people and seeing how hard they worked and the sacrifices that they mm. made. The money was very small, relatively, uh, in, in those days. But, uh, you know, you still had to find it. You still had to make it work. And, and how you mentioned a couple of times that, um, you know, had a couple of deals not come through, Jordan would have gone under, and that applied to other teams too, of course. So yeah. how precarious was it for a team, you know, like Jordan and, and others that you've obviously been involved in? Well, um, Jordan's probably the best example. I mean, after we had the, the thing with, with Michael, we got a, a little bit of cash flow, obviously. But then Cosworth tried to take us down because we were way behind on paying the bills. Luckily, the managing director at the time uh, was very drunk when he phoned me one afternoon to say what we were going to do, <laughs> what our problems was. And, of course, from my journalistic days, I was very good at making notes and telephone conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when they tried to take it to court and we put our submission and it was thrown out. But, uh, you know, we had to pay them in the end. And how did we pay them? We gave them Michael's Jordan 191. Car that Michael drove at school. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that shut them up. I think the value was... Four million, something like that, at yeah. the time, which was a bit unheard of for uh, value of a racing car. And remember, at this point, Michael had yet to win a race. Anyway, that was our way of uh, that was our way of. So you had to be creative, really, really creative. Oh, absolutely, all all the time, and it was non-stop in those early years. I mean, you know, the the free Yamaha deal saved us, but Eddie didn't get back his investment into the team and the banks lifted all the restrictions until we did the Peugeot deal in 95 which actually was was brilliant because we got the free engines total were not supposed to pay us they they paid into Peugeot but they liked us so much that they gave us three million anyway and told us not to tell Peugeot but that's when things started to started to go well and you know, by which time we were getting good sponsorship. And yeah, then Benson Hedges came along 96, a uh, cheap deal to start off with. I think it was 4 million quid in the first year, but that rose to 21, I think, in 2000. And, and That's that, a very good deal. Yeah, it was. So, you know, and yeah, we, we started we started to do all right. I mean, we... We still tried to take money off drivers if we could, if, that, if ever there was an opportunity. And if our uh, race drivers weren't paying, then we'd sign two or three test drivers because, you know, you were testing all the time. There's no limitation. 
So people would pay us, say, 100 grand, 150 grand to do a test day. Yeah. Perfect. And no restrictions on what we could sell on the car, much to Peugeot's and Latterly Benson Hedges. Uh, annoying. For it to work, if you don't want these little sponsors on the car, you just... Oh, so in a private test, you could put what you wanted on the car? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, around... We had, we had to keep the main sponsorship, but we'd fill up every other space that was going. <laughs> <laughs> we did the, the Bologna Motor Show, I think, in 95, and we had 202 different companies on the car. <laughs> <laughs> 202? Yes. <laughs> But tell me, say, so, you, so you've taken some money off a test driver to do some testing. What happens if he, if he pranks? Who pays? Uh, we'd make them take insurance. Okay. Part, part of the deal was they had to uh, <laughs> take, take insurance, which we said, we'll take care of the insurance, which, of course, we didn't. Because, to be honest, you've got so many spares that yeah. a, a prank, unless it was huge, 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 didn't really... You know, I mean, it sounds expensive. Oh, my God, there's three million to build that. But remember, you build 12 of every component. That's part of your... Yeah, yeah, of course. Part of the season. So you've got the bits. You've generally got the bits lying around. But, you know, of course, we used to dress it up as being very expensive. That's all. Yeah, and it sounds as if it was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, it was. Actually, I must tell you, another good thing about the, the Peugeot story was... Peugeot became available because Ron Dennis dubbed them. I know. He I was broke, there too. He broke, he, he broke the contract. Uh, and I, I didn't have a lot of time for uh, Philippe Sanjour, who was the uh, boss of Peugeot at the time. But the one thing he did was tell Ron Dennis to pay us $10 million. Wow. <laughs> now, I wasn't there when that happened. But Ron immediately took Eddie to one side and said, you've got to give me space on the car for this, that, and the other. It was hopeless. Anyway, they tried putting these things on the car, and it just didn't work. And I think we got to Wimmer, which must have been the third or fourth race. <laughs> we did a deal with Ron, let's call it eight, and just go away. <laughs> <laughs> so really, a team like Jordan was always ducking and diving. Oh, yes. We, we had to be. Um, there, there was no other. We had no other business yeah. uh, to back us up. That's all we were. You know, we were growing bit by bit uh, all the time, and everything cost money. And to be fair to EJ, you could go and ask him for anything. The design team could. Somebody on the factory floor needed something. We needed some machinery. And he never, ever said no. He might not have said yes immediately, yeah. but he thought about it, and within three weeks, uh, it was okay if you must. But during that time, between he and I, we'd have come up with some little plan that would finance something else. I mean, it was nonstop, and I have to say, it was a brilliant time of my, my life. The, the deals that we did were just unbelievable. <laughs> what a lot of fun Formula One was. Well, Norman, that, I, I think... You know, you've hit the nail on the head. It was fun. In, in, certainly in, in my years, one of the, the people who must take credit for it, of course, was Bernie Eggleston. Because his ability to wander around team motorhomes, winding people up 
one against the other playing games. Ah, oh, I mean, it was just fabulous. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, though, he had the interests of every team owner at home. Formula Once Upon a Time. Going on a very general point, my feeling is that uh, motorsport is maybe the only great sport in the world. That means uh, that for the driver to show himself, it pushes people to spend a lot of money because a car is expensive, a team is expensive. The crash, the damages that a driver can give to a car or to a team, it's incredibly expensive. So today you buy Lewis Hamilton and you pay all what you can pay because you know what Lewis Hamilton is and it worked with Sen and, and everybody else. But in the start, why for a team to invest in a young driver before understanding that he is already a great driver? So everybody paid something in the start to approach motorsport. Everybody in history, because I mean, we were touching before uh, uh, Fanjo. Yes, Fanjo came thanks to the Argentinian government. I mean, they, they were appointed like... Uh, official ambassadors from Argentina. There's also, you know, Perez, of course, from Mexico, who has uh, essentially a slim family, one of the richest in the world behind him. And, and you know, on it goes. Even Generalese, if you remember how Alese approached Formula One, it's a very big story because, I mean, um, Tyrrell in 1889 had Michele Alboreto, who was a very, very, very famous driver then. Yeah. Alboreto left Ferrari by the end of 88 to go to Tyrrell. And Tyrrell were extremely happy about Alboreto. But then Ken Tyrrell found a very good sponsorship from Camel. And Michele was Marlboro, was Philip Morris. Yes. So Ken Tyrrell had to choose either Camel or Michele. Of course, Camel were paying very much more. Yes. And, they, and, they chose, and they chose Camel. And it was before the French Grand Prix in July 1989. I remember it was a great surprise because we were invited inside the paddock from Ken and his son, Bob, uh, to see the new livery of the car with Camel, they easily explained why Michele was out. And Michele was with no job from that mm, day. Mm. And they presented us Gianalesi. Gianalesi <laughs> was just coming from Formula 2. He was brilliant in Formula 2. And he simply came because he had no fight with Camel. But He's, this, again, shows really that a paid driver, which is sort of a derogatory term, it, that's the reality of Formula One. That, that is, it, it is, you know, even if the drivers come from relatively normal backgrounds, the cost of, of getting there is so enormous. And, and as, as we, we, we talked about at the beginning, you know, now there's Red Bull Academies, Ferrari Academies, Mercedes Academies, and, and, you know, feeder teams. Of course, Minardi was one of the great feeder teams for many years. Now it's, well, it's Alfa Tauri the old Toro Rosso, which of course is the old Minardi team still. There's no way of getting in unless, unless you are supported by a big sponsor, a big company, a big bank, a big whatever. It, it's, it's just impossible, isn't it? And also because, Norman, if you remember the greatest time, not in a positive sense, but the number one times of paying drivers coming to Formula One, it was in the 90s, the yeah. early 90s, when there were... 36 cars in a weekend they yes. had to face pre-qualifying before qualifying to yeah, be accepted yeah, yeah. to qualifying and uh, 
36 cars meant uh, 17, 18, 19 teams. Many of them were in Formula One not to win, not to, to, to score something important, but only to, to gain money. And gaining money was uh, principally for some small teams receiving yes. paying drivers because there was an incredible, uh, an incredible combination of invoices and the taxes not paid and so on. People were there also to do this, not for properly competing. There were teams in Formula One who were not even able to compete in Formula Two, in Formula Three, but they were in Formula One. And this opened totally the way to paying drivers. But now Formula One is 20 cars is 10 teams. There is no space left for all these things. And so if uh, 20 years ago it was possible for a medium or even a low-medium driver to enter Formula 1, now it's not possible. And there are many more drivers than cars. That's why drivers know that uh, if they are not Hamilton, if they are not, I don't know, Niki Lauda or Gianalesi, they need also to face the possibility of paying to get in Formula One. I loved your expression of before about, um, you know, taxes and everything about uh, the, the 80s and <laughs> 90s. I remember, I remember I was once told there was a three-in-one rule, and I, I said, well, well, what's that? Well, Even for especially for one. the Italian teams, you know, you, you declare three to the taxman because you're exporting money to a sponsor. Yep. The sponsor gets one, and the other two, well, end up somewhere else. Yeah, somewhere else. <laughs> So not possible anymore. And it's interesting because you, you, you mentioned, you know, the Italian Federation and we've, we've mentioned Argentina, we've mentioned, you know, France and Japan. There is still a sense that Formula One is a, is a sort of a national, you know, some, you know, people would love to see, you know, the Italian racing red and Lotus is racing green and of course the blue from France and the, the silver for, for Germany. It's kind of gone beyond that, but it, it's interesting that Mercedes still races in those colors, and of course, Ligier raced mostly in blue, and Lotus, well, you know, they raced all those years in green. It is a pity we've lost that, isn't it, really? Or we, you know, we've lost some of those colors anyway. Uh, I mean, uh, it's quite strange that you close the list of teams with the Lotus, because it was Lotus who started all this. Yes. Lotus were green, but yeah. then one day... Colin Chapman showed the team with the gold leaf sponsoring. <laughs> exactly. John it was special. absolutely not green. And yeah. from then on, all the national colors were totally forgotten, yes. except, except Ferrari. Ferrari remained red, even if uh, when it was uh, not only red, but with much, much white, it was because of Philip Morris. If yeah, Philip Morris. But at least there was red in the, in the sponsorship. You're right. Yes. I mean... The famous black and gold car, you know, that, that suddenly appeared for Lotus, that, that was a big shock because I think so many people identified, so many people in Britain identified with the racing green as a British car. Yeah. And of course, the company was, was well, was global, obviously, but uh, the tobacco company, but essentially was, was a British brand, that particular brand. But yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's obviously changed enormously. But, um, it, you know, it comes down to what we said at the beginning of, of this podcast. It's all about show me the money. Our thanks to Ian Phillips and, of course, Roberto Boccafogli. So please like and subscribe and join us again for Formula Once Upon a Time.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 